Hey Liberty Lovers, how's it going? This is the Scottish Liberty Podcast number 9. 9. Thursday, 28th of July, 2016, with me, Tom Laird, and... Anthony Samaroff. Now that's how you do an intro. Alright, okay. Okay. I'm glad I've been educated. So, what's in the news today? What's burning your toast? What's burning my toast, man? Uh, Okay, hop to... Shall we start off with the Scottish Government's decision that it says it's going to go ahead with the named person legislation, even though okay, the highest court in the UK has ruled that it's incompatible with, get this, European human rights law. Okay, This is the European human rights law that the Scottish National Party love so damn much. right? And they've decided that in this instance, they love the European Human Rights Act and they love Europe, but not they, they're wrong this time. They're going to go ahead with the named person legislation anyway, despite that. Why is Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP got a raging hard-on for this piece of legislation? Well, I think it's a kind of Soviet-style, we care about the children. The comrade children. The comrade children. Get them while they're young. Yeah, get them grassing up their parents. For all sorts of things. I'm not really sure that they're sitting in dark, smoky rooms thinking, oh, if we get them when they're kids, then they'll be wards of the state forevermore. But it does speak to this kind of nanny state tendency of thinking that the government should be involved in everything from birth. I mean, if the government was really good at raising people's children, then I think we would have a lot less crap society by now since... um, children do spend 12 to 14 years in the care of their government parents Yeah, and local parentes, yeah, at, at school. So you would think you'd be, would be turning out fantastic. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if our society is that bad, but I, I really resent the interference uh, of the state. I think it's just a basic thing, you know, that the state has no business interfering firms unless, unless there is actually, they have good evidence that there's criminal activity going on there. And then that's a matter for the police. It's not really a matter for you know social workers or anybody else, the, I don't think. Yeah, and I think what people have a problem with is the implication that everyone's a suspect, every parent's a suspect. And once you start taking that attitude, yeah. it's very hard to zero in on people who actually are abused. Now, we've discussed the European Court of Human Rights legislation before, and we had a little bit of a back and forth or a dispute in that in episode six. If anyone wants to hear that, that hasn't heard it before, I do recommend it. I think it was a good little debate. I went through the rights in our show when I was defending the European Court of Human Rights. Okay. Yeah, I remember that. Now, one of our, our friends said in response to that, Apparently, it doesn't give you those rights. She says that just about every line has a caveat and a distinction that takes the right away in the right circumstances. Ostensibly, the European Court of Human Rights is giving us these rights, but every but the left instance, hand gives the right hand take exactly. Beside each right, it's, oh, except this circumstance, except that circumstance. And the circumstances are so broad and so vague that if the government wants to be totalitarian, the document's just giving them a right to do that. Doesn't it it say, I mean, somebody will be able to obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm sure that uh, European uh, rights, I'm sure, sure somewhere in there it says, you have the right to free speech. Unless the government decides that it's offensive, and then you're not. So that to me sounds uh, like the very thing you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, there are all those kinds of yeah. things. They give you a right, but they actually include a caveat in the right. Now, right. The more the the more the what gets me is like these documents are, are are you know they're voluminous. You know, there's there's loads of this legislation. And I think the more legislation, the more laws you have, the more inherently corrupt it is. You want something nice and simple that you can understand. You know, the yeah, non-aggression principle. Don't hit people, don't take their stuff. Yeah, you've got, it doesn't need a, a, a whole firm yeah, of defraud. New York lawyers to work that out. You know? So if you protect those rights, don't hit someone, don't steal their stuff, you're automatically protecting the right to free speech. If it's a right, it should be consistent and 
evenly applied. So you can't say these people have this right and and those people don't have a right. And in a sense, if it's a right that requires taking something away from someone else, like the right to education, yeah. the right you, to you, healthcare... You don't have a right to No, education. you don't. Because in order to secure that right, you would have to take a transfer of wealth from someone else and give it to the educator or force the educator to work for free. So you've got a right to go out and get an education. You've got a right to grab... You've got a right to learn because that doesn't involve taking something away from anyone else. As soon as you start to get into these kinds of supposed rights, what people call them as positive rights, I've got a right to receive something, then they contradict another right, which is the right to your property, your life, because the only way you can take that off someone is by force. Yeah. If they don't want to give it to you, then you need to use violence against them to take it off them. And a person's right to their property is part of the right to their life because they need to spend their time to go out and work to acquire that property. So if you take their property away, you're actually stealing part of their life, the life that they spent acquiring that property. Yeah, I mean, are you prepared? I mean, I can, I can see... You know, I could understand why somebody would conceivably put a gun in my head in order to build a hospital or to provide medical care. I disagree, but I can understand why they would do that. Are people really saying that you should be able to put a gun in a teacher's head to force it to educate your kids? Or put a gun or use the threat of force in order to build a school, to get money to build a school, or to get money to pay teachers or to buy books? So, I mean, are you, are you prepared to do that? Are you prepared to throw people in jail in order to get your project completed? So this is what I'm coming back to when I'm saying that the right should be applied to everyone. What we suddenly do is, as soon as you put someone in a police uniform, oh, suddenly something magic happens and now they are allowed to violate certain rights. They're allowed to kidnap people, let's say, for a victimless crime like smoking a joint or if you put someone in a military outfit. We don't call it going to other people's countries and shooting them. We call it war. It's not theft anymore, it's tax. Because this language is used to mire and muddy the waters so that we can't see clearly anymore. Well, it's going to form a new speak, I suppose. Exactly. Apparently, libertarians believe in these things called negative rights, which is like the right not to be aggressed against, you know, the, mm. the right to your property, the right not to have your property taken away from you. The right to free speech. The right to free speech. Things that don't actually impinge upon other people's person or property. I think it would just be more accurate to say that the, Anne Rand was very useful in clarifying these problems, which is funny because she's never really given credit in the academic philosophical circles for how clear thinking she was and how useful her writing is, even for people who disagree with her because they clarify the problems of political philosophy. And hers was to basically say, if you've got a right, if you've got a right, it should be applied to everyone. And once you've got those basic ones that can be applied to everyone, like the right to free speech, yeah. the right mm -hmm. not to be harmed, the right to property, the right not to be defrauded, mm -hmm. then once you've got those ones established, if someone says, well, I've got a right to this, yeah. and it contradicts one of those yeah. rights, you already have a problem. Mm -hmm. She really did a great job of clarifying that problem in a way that I don't think any previous political philosophers did. Yeah, because at the end of the day, I mean, what does... For example, what does my right to free speech cost anybody? I mean, or you could say, okay, if I said something horrible about somebody, then it might cost them, they might feel a bit butthurt. But it doesn't cost them a single penny, my right to free speech. My right to life doesn't actually cost anybody anything unless I demand that they pay for my, my style of living. Yeah, and so the problem is when you look at problems in terms of, oh, we should just get the government to do it. Let's get the government to build the schools or the hospitals, people lose their imagination, right? So people would say, well, what if you're dying and you need that health care? Should we just let you die? As though that's the only two options, use the government or let you die. 
No, there's there'd be on a free market there'd be a million solutions to that problem. You could offer to volunteer at the hospital, we could start a fundraiser, crowdfunding, they could put you on a payment plan, you could get a charity, you could agree to get your operation at a medical school so that students could come in and watch the operation and learn. You could agree to go with a trainee doctor. You could find a surgeon who was charitable and wanted to give one day a week. Or in the last case scenario, you could say, are you fucking kidding me? I'm like, I'm going to die here you, and you're not going to operate on me. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to go to the papers and let them know. So it's not just like if we don't give these things to people, why do we need to give up our principles, which in everyday life we accept, which is you don't hit someone, you don't steal your stuff. You know that is going to ruin your relationships. You know that's going to ruin your relationships. So why do we scale it up and allow the government to do it when actually when we do that, we lose our imagination, we lose our ability to problem solve and find interesting solutions to problems. Well, I would concur. And then back, just back to where I started, um, just to finish off, if that makes sense. The National Party and Nicola Sturgeon decided to go ahead with this Named person Act anyway. I think it's a, viola- a violation of people's rights. I, I really don't understand. Maybe somebody can explain it to me why the, uh, the SNP love Europe so much. But even in this instance where they seem to be violating the very rules that they seem to like so much, they're still going to go ahead with it. So that's me. Anyway, I'm done with the Name Person Act for the time being. Uh, next, we're going to move on to Owen Smith. Are you familiar with Mr. Owen Smith? Uh, I'm not very familiar with him. Well, Mr. Owen Smith, he's the contender for the leadership of uh, the Labour Party. Even though Mr. Corbyn is quite intent on not going anywhere anytime soon, uh, there seems to be this thing going on where uh, Owen, Owen Smith, he's the, the hopeful He's the guy who's going to who's going to take over if he gets his way. Now he's said today. This is I'm reading from the I newspaper. It says Smith vows to quote smash austerity and mocks Corbyn's misty-eyed rhetoric. The Labour leadership contender Owen Smith has promised to smash austerity, claiming that years of squeezed incomes and low wages have turned the UK into a frustrated, divided, increasingly intolerant country. I can't agree. Uh, in a speech to supporters at the symbolic site of the former Orgreave coking plant in South Yorkshire, the Labour MP for Pontypridd said that if he was elected, he would introduce a series of measures to make the country's richest people pay more to fund public services. This just sounds like old-school socialist rhetoric to me. He detailed 20 pledges to reduce inequality in the UK. Again, the socialist obsession with inequality, you know, the gap between rich and poor. They don't care that poor people are getting better off. They don't care about that. All they care about is there a massive gap. Why do I care about the gap between rich and poor? Why the fuck do I care that my next door neighbor car, neighbor's car is much better than mine? You know, that his house is bigger than mine, that he earns more money than me. Surely what should concern me is, am I making enough money to make ends meet? Am I making enough money to get by based on what the work that I'm doing? But again, you know, that, that obsession with the, the gap between rich and poor. What he's also said is he's going to introduce a wealth tax on the investment earnings of the richest 1% of people, which he said would raise $3 billion per year. And is going to reintroduce a top rate of income tax of 50 pence. With all this money, he's going to increase spending on the NHS by 4% per year. That's what do you think? Okay. They? Well, first of all, I just want to say that austerity is not an economic ideology. No. You know, no Chicago school economist has ever come out and said, we've got this uh, economic ideology called austerity. Well, what austerity for a start? But while they are cutting back, so they're increasing spending in other yes. areas. The Tories actually increased public spending massively. Well, they were well, in the first uh, in the first term. They office. always do. They yeah. always do. Even Thatcher massively increased government spending. There is no large scale cuts going on in the UK. Most of the supposed cuts are cuts to projected spending, to spending that was proposed in the future. And where they are making cuts, they're just making cuts to the dependent classes that don't make up that much of a size of budget. And we can talk about 
whether those are ideologically motivated. And what really pissed me off about the anti-cuts movement is they just went out with these banners that said absolutely no cuts. Why did they do that? Why didn't they say cut the wars, not disability allowance or something like that? Yeah, I could really get so, my head around it. Because if they were out doing that, then they were actually proposing a solution and they could have actually attacked a programme that they really don't agree with and said, well, yeah. if we can't afford our disability allowance, if we can't afford welfare for the most vulnerable people in our society, then why are we still fighting these wars? Yeah. Why, why are we bailing out bankers? Why are we bailing out bankers? Why are we spending billions a year in corporate welfare? Yeah. And, and things like that. Instead, they just took this stupid line, absolutely no cuts, which brings me to this 4% per year foreseeable future increase in NHS. This idea that if you put more money in, you're going to get better results. Where does that come from? Well, it's classic socialist thinking. Throw money at the problem, that will get better. Over the past 100, 200 years, over the past few decades, the price of almost anything you can think of in terms of work hours on the average wage has gone down. The price of a cup of coffee has gone down. The price of your shoes your computer will have plummeted everything in your house except your house, your education and your yeah, health care. Yeah. Those three things have gone up relative to the amount of time that you need to work. Why is that? Could it be because those are the sectors of society that the state is most involved in and most monopolised? And most monopolised. Now there's this thing called the Washington Monument Syndrome where when a cut is proposed, they will cut the most conspicuous thing. They'll cut, they'll, they'll say, oh, we can't afford the Washington Monument. Oh, no, you can't get rid of the Washington Monument. And that will encourage politicians to rethink cuts. In actuality, you could have a massive cut to services without seeing the quality of service provided necessarily fall. I mean, that's what profit does in the private sector. It encourages people to find ways to officiate their business so that they can gain the same amount of money in sales without spending the same amount of money in inputs. That's good. It's good for the environment. They find ways to make resources go further and so forth. It's not that the NHS needs mon more money. We need to talk about why people are so sick. And one of the reasons why people are so sick is that there's no well, incentives we, yeah. to be well. Yeah, we don't have a health service. We, we have, have a sick care yeah. service. I will plug a presentation that I've got on YouTube. If you type in Anthony Samaroff Healthcare, you will find me in a discussion with my friend John Coleman on the subject. Why are people so sick? Why do politicians get up and say, we are treating more patients than ever before? Yeah, as if that's as something if that, to boast that's about. That's not a success. Yeah. That's bad. What the ideal that they should be saying is, we're treating less patients, patients than last year because there's less sick people. That's how good we're, yeah, we're, we're health services. Yeah, that's how good our health services. How does a free market achieve this? Well, the incentives are reversed. If you had a financial advisor, you would want to make sure that when your share portfolio increases in value, he's making more money. And when it decreases in value, he's making less money. So his interests are aligned with yours. We need the same thing in healthcare. Right now we have a system where the only thing that is remunerated is sickness. If you turn up, you get drugs, someone makes money. You get an operation, someone makes money. No one is making money when you're healthy and losing money when you're sick. And that's what the free market would provide for people. The alignment of the interests of their insurance cooperative or company or whatever policy plan with their own. Right now, if you turn up to the doctor for a routine checkup every month, you're a hypochondriac. Under a sane system, they would increase your premium if you didn't go for a monthly checkup. Yeah, yeah, but but man, yeah. you, you're man, you, you're you're, in, you're you're insinuating man that there's profit to be made in healthcare, man. You know that's just you know you capitalist swine. How how could you even think about making profit? This is what people say. Well, and I, and I don't get it. I mean, it's like food is a basic requirement. If you don't eat, you will die. Yet, 
Nobody seems to see a contradiction or a problem with restaurants uh, and supermarkets and shops selling food to people. Yet, as soon as you talk about healthcare and suggest that it should be in a free market and people should sell it and people should, dare I say it, even make a profit, people start throwing their toys out the pram. It's important that people make a profit in the healthcare sector because a profit would be an indication that a service was in short supply. So supposing you had a surgeon that invented a new surgical procedure and he was the only one that could perform this procedure. Yeah. On a free market, yes, the richest people would probably get this procedure first, but by him charging the richest people as much as possible, that would generate the money for the hospital to train more surgeons and everyone would go I need to learn that procedure because that's where the profit is that's where the need is and in a very short order the price of performing that procedure would become cheap in the same way that laser eye surgery when it first came out only rich people could afford it because it's in the free market it's become eminently affordable but you need the profit motive to work so that the health system itself can see which procedures are the most in demand and train people and push resources towards meeting those needs where there's the most profit okay then but then doesn't every surgeon then end up doing tit surgery? Don't they all just end up becoming plastic surgeons and doing cosmetic surgery? Nothing wrong with lots of people doing that because the more money that comes into the hospital through those cosmetic surgeries, the more resources the hospital has to expand and put those resources into treating people who have other problems. What's more, fine, a thousand new plastic surgeons appear in London that will push the price of that plastic surgery down and also there'll be discoveries in the cosmetic surgery that will help people who need reconstructive surgery that have been burned. That creates more expertise. It has knock-on effects that are not yeah. necessarily predictable. So it's all good. Profit just means that demand outstrips supply and the more demand outstrips supply, the more it's... Uh, beacon for other people to train and providing that service and meet the needs of the people on a free market there'd probably be 10 times as many doctors as there are now yeah and people would be able to get a much cheaper service and where people couldn't afford it charity could step in people could step up and volunteer at the hospital in exchange for treatment and they could do all sorts of things that the imagination has just been eviscerated for. Well, okay, I mean, like that deals with his spend. What about his tax? Yes, you wanted to speak about that. So He's going to generate, this is the great thing, it's going to generate, it's going to raise three billion by tax, by a wealth tax. He's going to take money from people who earn it and give it to people who don't. This is classic socialist stuff. Tell us, just tell us what's wrong with that. Well, I mean, the old age-old argument is people will go away to another country, but... Look, the problem is, if people are making a lot of money on a free market, yes, we do have a corrupted neoliberal system where they might be getting benefits from the state, preferential legislation and things like that, yeah. and that should be stopped. But let's say, supposing they are making a lot of money on a free market, that's because their skills are extraordinarily in short supply, right? Yeah. Do you think that businesses like paying CEOs 200 million a year? Do you think if they could get someone who did the same job for 20 million, they wouldn't do it? Yeah. The fact is that our education system eviscerates people's imagination and creativity, destroys their confidence, and strips them of the ability for entrepreneurial skill in place of learning stuff and repeating it out again in an exam. The fact that people are making so much money is an indication that those skills are in short supply, and it is a beacon encouraging people to train up in those skills and become CEOs and entrepreneurs. Usually they're only on that salary for five to seven years, then they're replaced with someone younger. Now, if you're getting a lot of money, that means you're serving a lot of people. Someone asked me on Facebook once, well, Anthony, you know, what's your limit? Is there any ceiling to the amount of money you think someone should be able to earn? And I reflected on that and I thought, well, you're asking the wrong question. Would you 
rather someone made a billion pounds serving 10 million people or 2 billion pounds serving 100 million people or 10 billion pounds serving 100 million people how many patients is too much for a doctor to cure so my ceiling is the amount of money that people are willing to give that person of their own free will without coercion i don't accept their ability to make money by force or by using the state to regulate their competitors out of business as long as it's a free market you can't just be making that much money by serving a small number of rich people i mean some people can but even if you're selling a high value product a £15,000 coaching program or something like that. The people who buy it got that money from serving other people and you're not going to be making the same as, as the richest 1% are. If you've got that money invested in the stock market, you're actually being a steward of resources. You're meant to decide what to invest in and doing well means getting what people want. Everyone's differently capable at predicting the future. Some people who are very good at predicting the future will do excellently well in the stock market. And this pushes resources in the direction of people who are good at guessing, oh, I should invest in this business because people are going to want that product and those are skilled people. Oh, I shouldn't invest in that. If you do badly, you will lose that. But someone else will get it. Yeah. So you can take money away from these people, but what you're essentially doing... But you're not. He's not creating three billion. Exactly. He's rearranging it. So yeah. he's pulling it from the deep end of the economy and giving it to the shallow end. On the face of it, it's easy enough to do. You've got poor people over here and you've got rich people over here. Why don't we just give them the money and see if they can spend it? They'll buy it on food and clothes and things like that. Well, it might look good in the short term. There's no guarantee that you're helping in the long term. One is you're paying people not to work and anything you pay for, you're likely to get more of. And secondly, you don't know that those investments were not creating products that will improve the life of the poor. It's supply and demand. The more products there are on the market, which is what the supply side's going into, what rich people investing is going into, the price of goods come down. That's good for the poor too. People really don't understand this point. Money being invested in business is not just hidden under a mattress. They think, oh, all these rich people, they're just keeping their money in bank accounts. Why don't we give it to poor people and it'll help boost the economy? No, spending does not create growth. Saving does. When they save, it gets lent out to people who are starting businesses yeah. for them to produce things. And those things will come down in price and become eminently affordable to the poor yeah. over time. That's what we need. We need money in the supply side of the economy. That's why so many things are so much more affordable. Everything's yeah. more affordable to you than it was in the 70s. Your car, your fridge, your Hoover, your computer, everything. But even if this stereotype, old money bags, if Richard Branson or Bill Gates were just sitting on a big nest of £100 notes or $100 bills and lighting you know, expensive cigars with them and wiping their, their arse with, you know, with £50 notes, surely that would mean that the money that was in circulation would be worth more. Yes, you're very right. That's supply and demand. So they're withdrawing the supply of cash and as a consequence everyone else's money is worth more and this is a point that even my my hero Bastiat yeah. didn't, didn't actually pick up on in his treatises on economics he said well yeah maybe a few rich people do keep their money to themselves and and don't save it in a bank so that it gets let out and that is bad but it's not the majority he never even thought to notice the point which you've noticed which is even if the money is just under a mattress, it's increasing the purchasing power of everyone else's money. There's no bad use of money. If they spend it, they're stimulating the economy. If they save it, it's stimulating capital investment. And if they're hiding it under a mattress, it's increasing the value of everyone else's money. And, and why is it when people attack, when, when they think of the top 1% 
of earners. They always think of CEOs and fat cats and bankers. Nobody ever thinks of football players or actresses or actors. They seem to be, you know, they, they, they don't seem to get added into the picture. Um, I don't know why that is. So we basically agreed that his plans are pretty much cockamamie. It's silly because, look, supposing I want to do a new business investment, and let's face it, he's not just going to increase the income tax, he's going to increase corporation tax and things yeah. like that as well. It makes a big difference to me whether I'm going to take the risk. Supposing the investment is £200,000 and I'm hoping to make a million pounds. Yeah. Whether the income tax is at 40% or 50%, whether the corporation tax is at 10% or 25%, is going to make a big impact on how many risks I want to take with my money. I'm going to want to make a return on my investment. And it's things like this which are encouraging people to invest in property and become landlords and just rent out properties and things like that rather than investing in capital investments which is what we really need because interest rates have been so low for so long that it's not been worth saving and quantitative easing so much money is being printed that that discourages people from saving too all of these factors increase house prices and the amount of rent that people including poor people have to pay and that diminishes people's standards of living it's really the supply side of the economy which needs attention and the problem with the economics is it's very easy to understand one side of the argument and not actually have a very nuanced view. Because someone will say something like, well, you know, poor people don't just invest, they'll, they'll spend it in their local economy and that will get their local economy going. Yes, that is true as far as it goes, but you're not looking at the full picture, which is what was that money doing before you reallocated it? And also, how much does it cost to include a bureaucratic class in the middle to transfer a wealth from A to B. I mean, the amount of money that's spent per year by the American government on programs to help the poor is $3.2 trillion a year. With that amount of money, why are there still poor people? Yeah. It's because by the time... If they just, instead of the programs, if they actually just gave every poor person a million dollars, it would probably be better, you know? (laughs) Yeah, it probably would have cost less money. So economics is complicated and when you want to do economic analysis you can't just look at the obvious implications of an action. You need to follow all of the implications of the action and if you want to learn more about that I highly recommend Bastiat's essay That Which Is Seen and That Which Is Not Seen. But more on that another. Yeah, in the same vein of command economies and thinking you can centrally plan an economy, let's look at where that can lead in a very worst-case scenario. According to the Scotsman today, Zimbabwe's stock market has dropped to just £79 worth of trading. Um, and this is, this, is, this is a country that's in the grips of Robert Mugabe, a great hero of the left. Not so much these days, but initially when he, when he was put... Helped to power disgracefully, unfortunately, by Mrs. Thatcher and the Conservatives who helped put this Marxist gangster in power. Why did they do that if they were ideologically opposed to Marxism? Um, Do you know, I think Rhodesia at the time, as it was called, became an embarrassment to them and they just wanted to wash their hands of it. And we put... Rhodesia and Ian Smith, the the then uh, Prime Minister of Rhodesia, we put them under intense economic pressure through sanctions. America put them under pressure. And somewhat hypocritically, South Africa put them under pressure to hand over power to black majority rule. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But Ian Smith said at the time that the country was just not ready for that power transferal. He was in favour of evolution, not revolution. However, we lost patience. We decided to force Rhodesia into handing over power to Robert. Yes, you could argue that it was a free and fair election, but there was massive intimidation going on by uh, Robert Mugabe's thugs to put his Mashona tribe 
in the position of power. So this is another example of the West sticking their nose in where it shouldn't be and creating problems abroad. Yeah, I, I think this is this is where it ends up, you know, and this guy's been in power there now for, well, because he, he took power in the early 80s, uh, about 1980, 1981, something like that, and he's still there, and the country is impoverished. And what he's, got, what he's announced now, Robert Mugabe has announced that it, he's going to launch Soviet-style command agriculture, forcing farmers to grow food or crops or lose their land. Sounds good, but every single country, I mean, you'll know yes. about this, every single country that has done that, it has ended yeah. up in famine. Man, in famines. It's so sad because they just think, oh, we'll just take control of the farming and, and we'll be able to feed everyone. But in real life, incentives really matter to people in fact i heard in the soviet union there was a small percentage of land i don't know what it was maybe four or five percent that was privately owned that was allowed to be owned privately and that land produced 25 percent of the food okay this is what you can expect because people are invested in whether they own the land or not whenever the state has been responsible for distributing food there's been famine yeah and even people, I mean, this is a country that used to be known as the breadbasket of Africa. This is a country that fed the rest of Africa with grain and crops. You know, it was a, it's an extremely fertile country. There's no reason for it to have famine uh, other than really poor management. And what they did, the first land grab that took place, everybody said, well, that's right enough. You know, these white people took, went in there with a gun and a horse and they stole the land off the local population. Okay, you can make a case for that. However, the second land grab that nobody seems to know about is where actually the Zimbabwean government encouraged farmers to come from overseas, from countries like France, uh, Switzerland, from Scandinavia, Britain, uh, other parts of Africa, and said, look, come to Zimbabwe, buy land here, and you know, make a going concern of it. A lot of these white farmers who were kicked off their land in the last land grab were not people who went in there with Cecil Rhodes on a horse with a gun and stole it off the local population. These were people who bought the land, encouraged by the Mugabe government, bought the land and paid market price for it. And as soon as they made it a going concern, the land was taken by force by Mugabe's thugs and redistributed to his cronies, who knew about as much about farming as they knew about flying in the air. And it re- this is what resulted in the famine, and this is why well, nobody wants to actually own land in uh, Zimbabwe anymore, because at any moment it could be taken off of you. Yeah, and that is another feature yeah. of poor countries. Like, yeah. People think, oh, poor countries are just poor just because potatoes are worse still. Oh, because we are exploiting them and taking the resources. Not that there's never been any instance of that, but to say that the poorest countries in the world are the poorest because of Western intervention isn't fully accurate historically. It's something that I believed when I was on the left, but I've since learned more that I didn't know back then. Whereas there's countries that we have intervened in that are rich, there's also countries that we haven't intervened in that are poor, and the top 10 or top 20 poorest countries in the world has changed, you know, radically over the last decades. There's very consistent things which make countries poor. One thing is a lack of respect for property rights, because if you don't know that that property isn't going to be taken from you at any time, you've got no incentive to cultivate and invest in the property and create wealth. Yeah. Another thing is culture. Is at the norm in that culture, as it is in rich countries, to employ the best person for the job. In Zimbabwe, no. What you have is a situation, in, in a lot of African cultures, because they come from a tribal background, um, basically you look after yourself, exactly. your family and your tribe. That's what you do, and anybody who doesn't do that is an immoral person. You know, so so you you employ your family and you employ your tribe. You don't employ the best person for the job, you employ your family. They expect that off of you. That's a big difference between rich countries and poor countries. In poor countries, you're meant to employ someone 
that's done for you or someone that's close to you you're an asshole if you don't yeah whereas in rich countries you're meant to employ the best person for the job there's things that are out of people's hands like geography which is very important most countries that are rich have access to water if they don't then they're they've got other redeeming features and by water i don't mean just fresh drinking water which is important but waterways place to ship one of the reasons why britain was so successful was because it was an island and could have a big navy and and so forth so there's lots of factors that make countries poor but this kind of thing like the fact that your land can be grabbed at any time this is why the rainforests are getting cut down in the amazon there's no point in buying Hmm. the amazon yeah a charity can't just go in and buy part of the amazon and then people will log it anyway yeah so there's no respect for property rights in poor countries and that's one of the things that makes poor countries poor the tragedy is everybody was warned that this is exactly what would happen if robert mugabe took power in zimbabwe Mrs. Thatcher was warned. I remember at the time, because uh, I'm old enough to, to remember this, and my family lived in Africa at the time. We lived in Zambia, which is a neighbouring country. Lieutenant Colonel Peter Walls, who was in charge of the Rhodesian army at the time, had said to Margaret Thatcher, look, you're not serious about letting this guy take control of the country. And they actually discussed this. Peter Walls said, look, do I have your green light to go ahead with a military uh, coup if this Marxist government takes power through widespread intimidation, can I put it down with the army? And Mrs. Thatcher said, of course, I will never let that happen for the Marxists to take over. When they took over, Lieutenant Colonel Peter Walls was ready to go. All the, 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 the pieces were in place to, 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 you know, to, for a military coup. Margaret Thatcher wouldn't even answer the phone to him. <laughs> right, this is that. Yeah, so she she was partly responsible for installing this gangster in power, and and he still maintains that grip. He's brutal, but and and so it goes on. And I can't see it. It's terrible. It's miserable. You know, every, this is what it gets. This is what gets me. Even under the Smith regime, at least life for black people was tolerable. They had enough to eat. Under Robert Mugabe, everything sucks for everybody other than his cronies. You know. And that's and that's where all the money in the country just goes into his pocket and into the into the, the pockets of his supporter, and it's a tragedy. I don't know what the solution is going to be for well, that country any time soon. He has to start listening to the Scottish Liberty podcast, and then he'll. He know does how actually. To say so, it. If, if Bob, Robert, you know, if you're out there listening to the Scottish Liberty podcast, stop being a dick. Okay, that's my advice to Robert Gabby. To seg. From one uh, dictator to possibly another, um, Vladimir Putin. Is that controversial to call Vlad a dictator? I don't know if he is. I don't is. think he's as bad as people. I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of any leader, but I don't think. I think a lot of the stuff, his treatment of homosexuals is terrible. But we hear about that all the time. Is it any worse than the treatment of homosexuals in Saudi Arabia or any of or the North Korea and China? I say Saudi Arabia because we pal up to Saudi Arabia, yeah. right? I've seen him saying, we want to sign this treaty, we want to sign that treaty. It's America who doesn't come to the table to sign it. It's France who doesn't come to the table to sign it. We're trying to do everything we can to build international relations. Recently, he put out a video on YouTube expressing his condolences for the victims of the families and the, the, the terrorist attacks in France. Yeah. I think he's well admired in Russia because he's a strong leader. And he, yeah, and the Russians, and he's, yeah, they, they like that. They like that. Yeah. But also, I think as far as world leader goes, he really does want the best for his country and has been trying to achieve that. Yeah. That said, do I think he's a great guy? Would I want him to be the ruler of my country? Probably not. Would I choose him over the kind of leadership that we've seen... I don't think he's worse. I don't think he's worse than Tony Blair or, or David Cameron. No, I think if I'm wrong. Please, please, I, listeners, yeah, tell me why. I think he is. he's demonised. And he, on the subject of gay people, I spoke to a guy uh, recently, actually, who's who's a, a gay guy from from Moscow. Actually, and I said, you know, this what's the situation? Now, this is him telling me. He said, "Well, look, 
yes, it's 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 not ideal. It's pretty bad, but. In most instances, what Putin is doing is he's playing to there is a there is a lobby in Russia, a religious right, if you want to call it that, Russian Orthodox Church, who wants to hear him say things like this, and he does it, and he's pandering to that group of people. He says, but in Moscow itself, you know, you can pretty much live a gay lifestyle uninhibited, you know. But then I guess that's I guess it always depends on your wherewithal. I guess if you're rich. And you're a homosexual in uh, in Moscow, then things are okay for you. Maybe if you're poor and living in a bad neighbourhood, and people find out you're gay, it's going to get bad for you, and the police won't do much to help you. So, yeah, I, I'm not saying he's a good guy, but I don't think, in, in, in terms of world leadership, is he any worse than, than uh, you know Bill Clinton? Uh, I've no idea, right? Or is he any worse than George Bush? Again, I've no idea. I don't live under Putin, and I've no desire to live under Putin. But anyway. He's came out and he's uh, he's decried the the ban on Russian athletes if if they go ahead and they're going to ban Russian athletes from the Olympics in Rio. He's denounced it as a for as a political campaign and he's denounced it as discrimination. And I think he may have a point. We don't we we denounce uh, group punishment. You know, if we had to say, well, look, some Muslims have caused terrorist attacks and terrorist atrocities. Therefore, we're going to clamp down on the Islamic community. People would say that's group punishment and we just don't do that. It's not a way a civilised society operates. Just because some Russian athletes have been caught found doping, why are you then punishing the athletes who are clean by not allowing them to come to the Olympics either? Now, the counter-argument is, well, this is endemic. The Russian regime has actually encouraged this and they've been complicit. It's not just a few rogue athletes. It's the actual Russian Federation itself that encourages this behaviour and Putin knows it goes on and his government knows that it's going on and not only do they fail to stamp it out but they've encouraged it. I don't know if that's true but it seems to me somewhat heavy-handed to ban all Russian athletes on the boat. Look, why not? You know, you're going, you dope test athletes anyway. Yeah. So just, just dope. Yeah, yeah, you're right. All your athletes have to be dope tested by an independent body, and if they're clean, they're clean. You know, that's that's it. So I I don't know. Is he right or is he wrong in this? What do you What do you feel on it? Anthony? You've kind of yeah. I can't really disagree with anything you've said. I mean, until you said that it was endemic, I was going to say, well, why identify them by the fact they're Russian? Why not say? well, you know, one of the people who was doped up was a black guy, so we're going to drug test all black guys. I don't know if there's many in, in Russia. Or if one was ginger or if one was a homosexual, yeah. then we're, we're, we're going to drug test all, or we're going to ban all homosexuals. The thing is with these sports, it gets people involved across borders. And I never like it when people are like, oh, this country is committing this act or that act, yeah. so we should ban them for the yeah. competition. No, because just as when goods don't cross borders, armies surely will, yeah. when we start shutting off dialogue and shutting off what cooperation we do have, we lose the goodwill, and we don't have the most squeaky clean record either. No nation does, so there would be no <laughs> international competitions. Look, here's, here's, here's a mad idea. Let me just throw this one out there. Why not just uh, remove drug laws from athletics and sport and just say, like, you know, have at it. Just let all athletes dope. How would that work, do you think? Well, I think, again, this comes back to, can you not have separate... Separate Olympics? Yeah. yeah the doped-up Olympics? The amount of state money that goes into sport is absolutely ridiculous. Given the amount of money that people are already willing to part with just to see sports, which is massive, I yeah. don't agree with the government stepping in to build stadiums and roads. Pay for it yourselves, you fuckers. Yeah. Right? I don't give a shit about it. I don't, I don't really care about sport. I have to say that. I don't care about sport. I don't mind people. Do you know what really burns my toast, right? Have you got my script? <laughs> right. I'm just going to get this out. Have you ever listened to a football phone-in? I have, actually, on occasion. I'm not a big football fan. 
fan. You know, I'm right. not a soccer fan. I like you, to call it soccer because that annoys soccer fans. It's amazing how you get these people phoning in from all over Scotland. And the world sometimes. And the world sometimes. They know the names of all the players, all the managers. They know who scored a goal in 1996. Yeah. What's going on with other teams in the league who are... They're yeah. like... They know, the, they know the financial uh, goings-on. They um, know which, yeah, which managers are doing well, which players are doing well. They, they critique the manager's choice of players, their choice of formations. They are at PhD level yeah. in football. Yeah, and they, couldn't, and they couldn't give you five key policies from each of the, the political parties. Ex- that and that's what burns my toast. It's yeah. like, what a waste. Maybe a bigger snob. Okay. But look, if socialists can be snobs and say, well, people shouldn't really be listening to Lady Gaga, they should be listening to Mozart and... Sorry. I mean, I don't really like Lady Gaga. What, but what I mean is... She loves me, though. Yeah. When it, what, what I mean is socialists have this kind of... They look down on low culture and the state and the education system should teach people to be more cultivated and listen to Beethoven and not this crappy pop music. Some of them do anyway. Yeah. So I but think Mozart I, was pop music in his day. He was. But back then you actually had to go out and see people perform. So I think if they can be snobbish, I can be snobbish too about the f- sheer brain power. When you see... I don't know, 10, 20, more than that, 1,000 people in a stadium, many of whom are at a PhD level in just their... Knowledge. Knowledge of football. It's like, wow, we could have cured cancer. If all of these people were well-versed in Hayek, Mises, uh, Rothbard, uh, Bastia, Henry Hazlitt... Which team did they play for? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the Austrian team. Oh, the Austrian team. Right? The okay, Austrian cool. school team. <laughs> then they really would, that really would could have a massive impact in the world. So given how much knowledge is soaked up or how much brain power is being yeah. soaked up in this game, no more state funds for sporting events, please. And let's have two international competitions, the doped up competition and the regular competition for people who don't take drugs. I agree. Let's let's have two Olympics. Let's have the... Because I'd, I'd love to see that, the doped up Olympics. <laughs> There'd be people trying to do the, the pole vault without a pole and things like that. You know, they just try it. It'd be fantastic. Yeah, let's have the doped up Olympics. I mean, I kind of agree on the football thing. I mean, people are fond of quoting that Bill... I think it's Bill Shankly, somebody can correct me, who said, football's not a matter of life and death. It's more important than that. And people actually laud that statement. Do you know what? If the man actually said that and he meant it, he's a fucking idiot, right? He's a... Bill Shankly, you fucking suck. You're a fucking arsehole. I don't know whether you're dead or alive or whatever, but if you actually said that and you meant it, you are a fucking numbskull, okay? Maybe he was just being funny. I don't know whether he's... But people quote it. Yeah. When, when people quote it, they're not being funny. They're actually saying it, and they say it in a kind of, you know, sombre tone. They go, Foot, you know, as Bill Shankly said, you know, football's not a matter of life or death. It's more important than that. No, it fucking isn't, okay? That's the end of that one. So whether it's football or whether it's athletics or whether it's anything else to do with sport, and there's some sports I like, it ain't as important as life or death. And whether it's lefty or righty, it's wrongy. <laughs> yeah, so be a libertarian. <laughs>